Hello and welcome to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. Our conversation today is about the deal signed in Washington on Tuesday that has doubled to four the number of Arab states who now recognize Israel, with the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain joining Egypt and Jordan. My guest is Sami Hamdi, editor-in-chief of the International Interest. Sami, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Bill. Now, the, the rhetoric in Washington on the 15th September was about peace in the Middle East, that from President Trump, and an historic pivot from Benjamin Netanyahu. What do you make of those claims? First of all, uh, UAE and Bahrain uh, were not actually at war with Israel for there to be peace uh, in the first place. Secondly, uh, I think uh, it's very noteworthy that on the day of the signing, Gaza was being bombed uh, once more by Israel, uh, which uh, definitely does not suggest peace. Uh, Thirdly, I think that the whole normalization process is rooted in two very important dynamics that have nothing to do with peace. The first of these dynamics is a desire by Donald Trump to present himself to the American people of being the only president that can achieve the impossible, the president who can achieve this uh, peace that has eluded all of his predecessors and that he deserves to go down in history as this foreign policy masterclass when you combine it with the fact that he's conducting these peace talks with the Taliban. The second important dynamic that suggests that this has nothing to do with peace is the fact that normalization is being driven by UAE ambition. It's driven by a UAE desire to establish Israel as a pillar of its foreign policy in order to be able to wield Israel and the White House against its rivals in the region, whether that's Qatar, whether that's Turkey, or whether that's even Saudi Arabia and Egypt, that if these two countries stabilize, are very unlikely to accept to be led by uh, Abu Dhabi by a smaller Gulf state. And the reason I say this is that when we look at the UAE ambition, UAE has been rising since the Uh, Arab Spring uh, took a turn for the worst. In other words, uh, when we look at it from the UAE perspective, they are comparing themselves to Qatar, not to Saudi, but to Qatar. They are saying that Qatar was able to achieve a certain level of independence and establish its own global influence and worldwide lobbying network by relying on two central pillars. The first is a very close ties with Washington when Qatar in 96 brought the largest U.S. military base uh, to the region. And the second was being one of the first Arab countries, as, as I'm talking about Qatar, in establishing ties with Tel Aviv that ensured that whenever Saudi applied pressure on Qatar, Tel Aviv would get involved and try to keep Saudi Arabia in check. So the UAE is now saying, I want to have these dynamics for myself in order to achieve my own ambitions in the Mediterranean, in Yemen, in Libya, in Somalia, in Ethiopia. I want to be a regional power. And part of that is uh, offering Israel what nobody has offered it before, which is open normalization and putting the White House uh, in my pocket, as was suggested by one of the prominent UAE analysts who said that Bin Zayed did not need to go to Washington because now Washington is in our pocket. Uh, this idea that having the White House on board to prevent any possible repercussions that might come about as a result of the expansion or exertion of UAE ambition. Now, now Sami, I want to get back to the UAE uh, a little later as well, but and uh, w- worth noting that the Israeli attack on Gaza happened after rockets were fired from Gaza on the 15th of September. But Jared Kushner says that his peace to prosperity deal will keep the two-state solution alive. Why is he saying that when so many others are saying it is dead or it's dying? 
I think, uh, to be honest, I, I know it's an unpopular opinion, but I think Kushner is right. I think uh, the idea that Arab states would now recognize Israel as a right to, uh, that, that it has uh, a right to exist, that it has a right to be a state, that it has a right to enjoy relations as a state and be treated as a state, uh, is in itself uh, a final acceptance by UAE and Bahrain that there will be a two-state solution. And I say this because uh, what has been a key policy or U.S. policy in the Palestine-Israel issue is trying to alter the narrative, alter the history from one in which land was taken by an external force to one in which land now should be divided in two and the matter should not be one about restoration of rights and justice, but to what extent we should allow illegal occupation and then legitimize it under the umbrella of the two-state solution. So when Kushner says that we've rescued the two-state solution, what Kushner means and what I agree with him uh, in this uh, matter is, is that Kushner is saying that now the idea of restoring the justice of the Palestinians whose lands were taken has, is now out of the window because the Arab states in recognizing Israel have discarded the notion that there was an injustice and oppression in the first place. And now we're moving on to a discussion as to how much oppression should we allow, how much land should we allow to be given up, how much land should we accept has been forever taken, and that land will become the state of Israel. I, that's what I think Kushner says when he says that we've rescued the two-state solution, because Kushner now believes that rather than superimposing this narrative of the Palestinian land uh, belonging to Israel, now he has Arab nations on board who will propel this narrative that it is no longer incumbent on the Arabs to restore that, uh, to restore justice, to restore all of the land that was taken, and that the Arabs will now do the propaganda of convincing those Arabs that we should now forever give up some of that land under the pretext of the state of Israel. Yes, and of course that two-state solution is a is a non-contiguous state. Uh, with uh, Palestinian communities and cities basically isolated on the West Bank, uh, East Jerusalem, not the capital, perhaps a suburb of East Jerusalem, a capital, uh, a huge win for the Israelis. And the Palestinians, the message seems to be coming from the United Arab Emirates. Uh, you just accept it. This is what you get. And if you don't, it's only going to get worse. I think when it comes to, to, to the Palestinian angle, I think it's important that while we analyze the current uh, dynamics, uh, there is a, an example I heard somebody give yesterday in that if everybody, if anybody's a fan of football, they remember in 2005 Champions League final, Milan were beating Liverpool 3-0 and then Liverpool completely overturned it in the second half. I think that we're in the first half in that everything seems to be in Israel uh, and Kushner's favor. Everything seems to suggest that everything is going their way. But let's look at certain dynamics that suggest optimism and hope for the Palestinians and the suggestion that perhaps what we saw in Washington in what will go down in history as one of the ultimate acts of betrayal by the Arabs to their fellow brethren. I think now the Palestinians are waking up and saying, we cannot continue as we are divided into two separate factions or more, and that we have to get together and we have to start trying to present a unified front, and that we have to start uh, uh, acting unilaterally and independently uh, of these different Arab states, and we have to start looking at alternative options to uh, assert ourselves. In other words, in the midst of all of this adversity, there is now a sudden impetus 
to find an alternative means to come together to realize that the threat is imminent and that something needs to be done about it. And this is why I'm not necessarily entirely pessimistic about what's going on. Because history shows that uh, the UAE and Bahrain are not the first Muslim emirates to cooperate with colonial and oppressors uh, against their Muslim brethren. And history shows that these small emirates tend to be swallowed up, whether that's by Saladin in the past, whether that's by the Ottomans who began to expand uh, or the like. In other words, oppression doesn't last. Eventually it comes crashing down. Algeria was under the French for 132 years and eventually we managed to kick out the French even when during that 132 years the French were so powerful that people uh, believed that the French were going to stay there forever. So I think politics is always changing. No one predicted Trump. No one predicted Brexit, but these things happen. Politics is constantly changing. And this is why I'm not entirely pessimistic. The Palestinians have been betrayed, but that doesn't mean that they lack agency or that their agency has been removed. They are still in a war of resistance. They are still in a war to retake their land and restore their rights. And I think the Palestinians today will have a greater appreciation of this, particularly given in recent times they've talked about the prospect of coming to accept the current circumstances as a result of war fatigue. But after this, they will believe that it is incumbent on them to continue their resistance. But look, Sammy, I mean, yes, uh, you've called it a betrayal. Certainly, that's the way many view it as a betrayal. On the other hand, this is transactional, real politique at its finest, uh, the Trump uh, supporters will say. Transactional. You know, you give us something, we'll give you something back. I think uh, the, uh, had bin Zayed and the, the, the Emir of Bahrain been in Washington for the signing, I would have agreed with this analysis. But the fact that they were absent shows that the Bin Zayed in particular is, has concerns uh, and is not entirely happy with the results of offering normalization with Israel. And you'll remember the controversy over Israel uh, opposing the sale of F-35s uh, to the UAE. And also a more important issue in that, and this is why I alluded to the dynamic of UAE ambition earlier, in that UAE wants to use normalization to wield Israel against its rivals. But Israel has very different expectations. UAE expected that when it offers normalization, it will be treated as an equal and have equal access to some of that advanced weaponry and access to the White House. But Israel has different interpretations over what normalization means, in that you may be, you may think you're my equal, but I will not allow you to be militarily equal to me in the region. And that upset Mohammed bin Zayed. Moreover, it appears that the UAE and Israel have very different expectations with regards to what normalization means for the wider politics in the region. Israel wants to target Iran. It wants an anti-Iran alliance. But the UAE is the second largest training, trading partner with Iran. It is historically the country that has helped Tehran to circumvent sanctions. It avoids all uh, Iranian interests in Yemen and in Syria, avoids antagonizing Iran. It's supporting separatists in Yemen and the separatists are not willing to go fight the Houthis. They're each fighting in their own uh, orbits. And in Syria, UAE was happy to help uh, fund Iran ally Assad. And the UAE military delegations regularly visit Tehran in order to uh, negotiate and discuss some of the issues in the region. So UAE has no interest in going up against Iran, especially when you look at its geography and when UAE realizes that it will be right on the front line and it has no interest of bearing the brunt of it. Instead, the UAE wants to target Turkey and Qatar, but Israel wants to woo Turkey and Qatar. If you look at the Israeli articles coming out from inside Israel, it's all about the need for re-establishing good relations 
negotiations with Turkey. And Tel Aviv has been lobbying against the blockade of Qatar to Washington, insisting that Qatar is a valuable ally in acting as a conduit to communicate with Hamas and communicate with the Palestinian factions. So there is a huge gulf in what normalization means for the political uh, status or political status quo in the region. And that will cause deep concern for Mohammed bin Zayed because it will result in an inevitable clash between Israel and bin Zayed. And this is what leads me to believe that perhaps bin Zayed's goal is not normalization of ties with Israel, but to win over the White House, to put the White House in its pocket such that it no longer needs a mediator, it doesn't need Tel Aviv, and it will be able to communicate with Trump directly by saying to Trump, look, I brought, uh, I made Bahrain normalize relations. I made bin Salman allow the airspace to be used for Israeli flights. I brought Sudan's leaders to sit with Netanyahu. I am the ally that you need. I am the partner that you need. And the UAE expects the US to say, you are such a valuable ally. Tell us what you want us to do in the region. You want us to sanction Qatar, we'll sanction Qatar. That's what the UAE is trying to achieve. And this is why I think Bin Zayed didn't attend Washington, because he believes that what he wanted to get out of normalization is looking far more difficult to achieve, despite the lengths that he's gone to to try to achieve it. So, so Sami, perhaps a misstep by Mohammed Bin Zayed. But let me ask you about the Saudis, because they've come out uh, yesterday and reiterated their support for their peace initiative, that's rejecting the Kushner deal. How should we uh, read the Saudi position? Where is Saudi Arabia in this one? I once uh, attended a, a roundtable, a, a closed-door meeting with a, a senior American general based in uh, Kuwait in the U.S. command center. And he said under Chatham House rules, he said that, the, that, that, that bin Salman uh, informed the Americans that he needs 20 to 30 years to de-radicalize Saudi Arabia and he needs the Americans to be patient with him, and he needs their support, and that he is committed to socially engineering Saudi society to make it more acceptable to Western standards and European standards. In other words, what bin Salman is doing here is saying, listen, my country is not ready for me to come out and say, I agree with normalization, but I will give you some piecemeal initiatives that show my commitment to engineering Saudi society in a manner that later on might see room for relations with Israel. This is why when we see the gradual uh, fall in Saudi Arabia's approach, in that in the beginning when the Al Al flight flew from Tel Aviv to Abu Dhabi, Saudi initially said this was because of a US request. Then it came out with a statement and said that all flights to and from Abu Dhabi would be permitted to use Saudi airspace. It was a, a roundabout way of saying that Al Al could continue to use Saudi airspace in order to fly to uh, Abu Dhabi. And uh, when Kushner comes out and says that Saudis have allowed all Israeli flights to use its airspace, it's clear that bin Salman, his messaging is, listen, my society is not ready to accept this. Uh, my, uh, I don't have the stability to be able to go with it. But trust me, I'm with you. I'm ready to go along with it. But please appreciate my circumstances. And the UAE, which is the de facto ambassador of bin Salman to Washington, is saying, look, uh, President Trump, you got what you wanted. You've got your historic agreement. The Arabs are recognizing Israel. You've got something to take back to the American people. You don't need Saudi Arabia to come out and say it. Qatar has been under pressure to announce normalization of ties, which is why in the strategic meeting, the annual uh, Qatar-US strategic meeting, the Qataris insisted that they did not need to do normalization, that they're on board with their peace initiatives with Donald Trump, 
and that they use their other leverage in that we are committed to U.S. interests in the negotiations with the Taliban, in, in acting as a conduit with the Palestinian parties, in putting up the funds uh, for Gaza that Israel doesn't want to put up. In other words, we are demonstrating our commitment to eventual normalization of ties with Israel, but in other means. So with regards to Saudi Arabia, I know there was this Financial Times article that suggested that people are upset with bin Salman, but I disagree with this notion. I think the U.S. are fully on board with bin Salman. I think they appreciate his unique circumstances. I think they accept that uh, bin Salman's piecemeal initiatives that indicate that he's happy with the process going towards normalization. And I think they will protect bin Salman so long as he continues on this trajectory of trying to socially engineer Saudi society to one day follow in UAE footsteps. Now, look, there has been really uh, throughout the Arab world since this announcement was made back in August, early August, really a muted uh, level of protest. Uh, how do you read that? I think the, it's important to look at the region and, as, it, as it is, not for what we want it to be. Civil war in Yemen, civil war in Syria, civil war in Libya, political chaos in Tunisia, a very tense political transition in Algeria, an unsteady Sisi who in his frustration said, if you don't want me, I'll go, and, 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 and even suggested the possibility of a referendum, suggesting he's not as stable as he would like to be. Bin Salman embroiled in a succession struggle in El Saud, unable to agree as to how to pass the kingship from the second generation of princes to the third generation uh, of princes. Qatar isolated as a result of the blockade. UAE asserting itself at the expense of its neighbors. When you look at the region, everybody is so embroiled in their own domestic issues that there is no possibility or room for a united front, whether that's against Palestine or the like. In other words, the mechanisms for preventing any protests, for preventing uh, any gatherings on the streets are already being implemented to such an extent that even on issues of Palestine, they cannot protest. Egypt is not allowing any protest because it doesn't want people to protest against the army. And that inadvertently affects the ability of the populations to protest the issues of Palestine. Saudi Arabia, same thing. Uh, Algeria, the coronavirus and, and, and the, the, the measures implemented by the Algerian government presents, pre prevents any real congregation of people to protest the Palestinians. And that's why it's interesting that in Bahrain, we've seen what's been called silent protests, posters being put up on the walls uh, or on shops denouncing the uh, normalization of ties between Bahrain uh, and the US. So I think the lack of protest is not a sign that the people accept normalization, but a sign as to what, to what extent the security measures and the ability of the authoritarian regimes to clamp down on all forms of dissent have been so, so effective. From the perspective of political Islam, the defense of the Palestinian cause is a bedrock. And of course, the great enemy of political Islam is Mohammed bin Zayed. What does it say that, that he's the one who's leading the normalization charge? What does that say in the context of political Islam? I think that uh, bin Zayed, uh, his, his, his phobia of political Islam is not simply just because uh, he dislikes the ideology. But because of the fact that whenever we look at the Arab Spring, and I always assert this point whenever, whenever the, the, the opportunity comes up, UAE and Saudi were facing an existential crisis. They were facing a situation whereby the wave was so irresistible that it was only a matter of time before it reached these countries and toppled the establishing ruling families. And moreover, the UAE and Saudi, one of the reasons that they dislike Qatar is because they believe that Al Jazeera and Qatar were fanning the flames and trying to channel it against these two 
particular countries. So the reason that Bin Zaid has a phobia of political Islam is not necessarily because of the ideology itself, but because it is the most potent and most effective ideology that threatens the rule of Al Nahyan of the royal families within uh, the Gulf region. And it's important to understand that the UAE makeup is a minority Arab population, minority group of families ruling over a majority of expats uh, in their country. In other words, they're a minority within their own country. So there's an extra sensitivity towards all concepts associated with security. And this is why it's important to point to, that, to the fact that UAE's meteoric rise took place after the Arab Spring, after that existential crisis, after that sudden shock, after the dangers came home and were knocking on the door of the UAE. That's why Bin Zaid is so rabid in his approach to crush political Islam in Libya, in Tunisia, in Egypt and the like, in order to give it not a single place uh, to breathe so that it can no longer tap into the wave that happened in 2011. And we, I always argue that politics is a science of human relations. We are defined by our experiences. Bin Salman is not just fueled by ambition, but by a deep fear that the Arab Spring might take place once more. And therefore, it is imperative to restore authoritarianism in the region to preserve the current status quo that ensures that he stands uh, at the head of the UAE. And I think uh, whenever we look at the UAE internal dynamics, which we won't go into into too much depth, uh, it's very noteworthy that prior to the financial crisis, Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum of Dubai was considered the de facto leader of the UAE. After Abu Dhabi bailed out Dubai, bin Zayed suddenly had Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum in his pocket and became the de facto a leader. So it's all about personal ambition and trying to preserve that status quo, preserve that framework to pursue that personal ambition. And as you say, currying favor with Washington and with Israel is useful in terms of that, the great bogeyman that MBZ sees political Islam as. Now, now finally, President Trump claims that there are countries, big countries, he says, jostling to jump on the bandwagon. Now, who do you see as next to board the normalization express or perhaps it's more of a slow train than an express but but who do you think will will jump on next or will anyone jump on now i think uh, the, the the term jump on uh, suggests that there's a desire for normalization in the region i argue that the the, the 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 bahrain for example was coerced by the uae and by the us uh, to uh, normalize ties and as we're seeing the pressure on qatar and saudi arabia to normalize ties, it's clear that the Trump, the Washington and Tel Aviv, or Washington in particular, is pushing this momentum and saying to the Saudis and the Qataris and the like, I want you to normalize ties, prove your loyalty to me, prove that you are uh, allies of us, prove that you are working uh, within our interests. And I think that's why when we talk about the idea of jump on, it's more accurate to say who will be coerced or who will be so terrified of the repercussions that they will announce normalization of ties in order to fend off the prospect of pressure, of increased pressure from the US. Uh, the countries that are being touted are Sudan, are Oman, uh, Morocco might, uh, has been rumored to, that it might implement uh, flights from, Tel Aviv, from uh, Morocco to Tel Aviv, Morocco to uh, Israel. But the reality is that unless there is concerted pressure from Washington, these countries will not uh, pursue normalization. So I think it's not about looking at which country will, 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 will jump on next. It's important to look at who Pompeo will target next. Who will Pompeo visit 
to lay down in no uncertain terms that they must normalize ties with Israel. And that will give an indication over who will actually come next. The reason that Pompeo failed in Oman and Sudan was because at the time that he visited, Israel were resisting the F-30 sale of the F-35s. So Sudan and Oman said, look, there's no practical benefit. We're not going to normalize ties. But now that Israel has reversed position, now that Trump has told Israel to stand aside and that it's insistent on selling the F-35s, probably because it's, it's, it's uh, not financial, financially feasible uh, at this moment in time and they have to sell to make money. And uh, now that the UAE might receive tangible benefits, it may well be that Sudan uh, and Oman might uh, change course. Although Sultan Haytham of Oman will be monitoring the social environment first, uh, which continues to be quite unstable as a result of unemployment and corona and an ongoing economic crisis. It remains to be seen whether Sultan Haytham will provoke the Omani people by pursuing normalization and whether he will pursue a Qatari approach instead of asserting his credentials uh, that, would be, that would be hindered if he did normalization and hope to convince Washington uh, in that regard. Samuel, listen, thank you very much. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for having me again. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Sami Hamdi, Editor-in-Chief of the International Interest. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to arabdigest.org. If you're a student, we have a new rate of £10 a month or £100 per year. And for academics and retirees, we are now offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources.